The Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast is sponsored by U.S. Bank. Embracing what makes us unique creates more possibilities for all. Learn more at usbank.com diversity. U.S. Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Here are a few messages from the forum before we start the show. Registration to our 32nd annual conference, Facing Forward, is now open. Our three-day flagship event, the annual conference, is our premier learning opportunity at the cutting edge of a diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape. This year's conference features more than 96 sessions and three feature general sessions, which cover topics like globalization, social tensions across ethnicities and interests, and embracing the increasing rate of change and disruption across many different sectors. The conference also features more than 180 presenters and speakers from around the world, and our innovative 40,000-square-foot Marketplace of Ideas exhibitor space. But that's not everything you'll find at this year's conference. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org for more information about our additional features like our expanded wellness center, the popular diversity, equity, and inclusion coaching center, our off-site immersive learning experiences, and more. The Forum Annual Conference is SHRM and HRCI eligible. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. Your engagement with our podcast supports our growth and helps us reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've already written a review, thank you. And please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or colleague. Word of mouth from our audience is the best way the forum grows. So thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast, Creating the Stick, How to Build a Year-Long Diversity and Inclusion Sustainability Program with presenter Chris Jones of Spectre Diversity. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. Today's podcast will focus on the question, what will create actual change in the organizational culture in terms of inclusion? Chris Jones of Spectra Diversity maintains that post-training sustainment is key to making new inclusion behaviors stick. Chris is the founding partner of Spectra Diversity, creator of the only validated diversity and inclusion assessment, which measures both the individual and the organization. Without further ado, I'd like to hand things over to Chris. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Uh, As I was preparing for this podcast, I got a Facebook post from a young man that I met through my community choir. At the time we met, he was a senior at St. Olaf College. For those of you in Minnesota, you know that it's uh, well known for its music program. He was hired by my choir as a soloist. He's a tenor, and we hired him again since the first time that we hired him two years ago, so I've gotten to know him a little bit. He's terribly good looking, he's very nice, he has a sweet tenor voice to die for, and he's black. Here is his Christmas Eve Facebook post. Quote, send love and good vibes y'all. I miss my family and these white folks are too much up here for me to stay sane. I wanna be home for the holidays, five exclamation points. I'm dreaming of a white Twin Cities classical music scene, just like the ones I've always known where the microaggressions glisten, white men and women don't listen, to hear opinions not their own. I'm dreaming of a white Twin Cities classical music scene, with every name mispronunciation they try. May your days be merrier than mine, and may all your Christmas gigs be white. For all the people I'm doing gigs with, please think about how your myriad of microaggressions and ignorant comments affect the only person in the room that doesn't look like you. 
I know it's oh so hard to be self-aware, end quote. When I got that Facebook note or uh, posting, I wrote him a note saying that the first step in combating implicit bias and racism is awareness and that too many people are still unaware. Don't despair, I said. Find your allies like B. He wrote back with a thank you, ma'am, followed by, quote, ignorance is only bliss for the ignorant. Ha ha ha. Thanks for being one of the good ones. Heart emoji. End quote. I think that many of you listening may agree with me that inclusion is the hard part of diversity and inclusion. It's hard because of the society that we've grown up in, whether you're a baby boomer like me or a millennial like my children. It's hard because of neuroscience. It's hard because of systemic cultural issues in the US and because it's hard to change. It's not only hard to change bad habits like smoking or overeating, it's just hard to change, period. So today I'm gonna to talk about four points. Uh, one, why the diversity and inclusion needle hasn't moved much since the 1980s. Two, why it's important to put a priority on inclusion. Three, why it's hard to break through our biases. And four, how to create new habits of inclusion through year-long micro-learning methods designed to build new inclusion habits through repeated activities, gamification, and practice. I've got several facts and resources that I'll be giving you today, and I'll have a document which lists them so you can just listen if you'd like. I'd love to get your reactions after this podcast is uh, published or released. First, a word about the title, Creating the Stick, or as I refer to it as stickability. Charles Duhigg has a few words to say about stickiness in his book, The Power of Habit. In it, he says, quote, there's evidence that a preference for things that sound familiar is a product of our neurology. Scientists have examined people's brains as they listen to music and have tracked which neural regions are involved in comprehending oral stimuli. Listening to music activates numerous areas of the brain, including the auditory cortex, the thalamus, and the superior parietal cortex. These same areas are also associated with pattern recognition and helping the brain decide which inputs to pay attention to and which to ignore. Without our brain's ability to focus on some sounds and ignore others, everything we hear would be a cacophony of noise. Listening habits allow us to unconsciously separate important noises from those that can be ignored. That's why some sounds, some songs sound familiar, even if you've never heard them before. It's because they're sticky, end quote. An example of this is my dad. Uh, he's almost 93, and he's lost about 99% of his hearing. He can hardly hear anything. Um, and now the only thing that he can hear, though, is music at my choir concerts. And I think the reason he can is because the music he knows is sticky. He's sung Handel's Messiah dozens of times, so when my choir sings it, he can hear it in his head. He hears the 1% that my choir is singing with his ears and fills in the other 99% from his music memory. Duhigg goes on to say that new music, music that's unusual or doesn't fit known patterns, can be successfully introduced to an audience by placing it between two songs that are already well known or sticky. This has been exhibited in shopping experiences as well. If something, is new and, if something new and unfamiliar is placed between two items that are already sticky, the new item or new song can also become sticky. In retail, 
these items don't even need to be related. For example, if you place a new lotion between items that a new mom is going to be buying anyway, say like diapers and formula, the new mom is likely to buy it because it's between two familiar things. So I want you to, that's the first tip that I'll give you today is remember that tip to introduce a new habit or a new behavior, put it between two habits or behaviors that are already sticky. So point number one, why the diversity and inclusion needle hasn't moved much since the 80s. Here's a little bit of history. The EEOC was established in 1965 as a result of uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 64. It was followed by the Age Discrimination Employment Act of 67, the Rehabilitation Act of 73, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, and the ADA Amendments Act of 2008. So sometime in the 80s, large corporations began to conduct diversity training so that they could stay on top of those discrimination lawsuits. Many of the DNI training activities that we use today are the ones that have actually been around since that time. In 1976, uh, a gentleman named Hall developed the iceberg analogy of culture. He said that if the culture of a society was the iceberg, then there are some aspects visible above the water, but there is a larger portion hidden beneath the surface. And if you've done or, or participated in any uh, DNI training, you have seen the famous cultural iceberg. It's still in use today. Uh, Schlossberg's, well, that's kind of a hard word to say, Schlossberg, his model of life transitions includes the concepts of mattering and marginality, and that was developed in 1987. Mattering and marginalizing is still used today also. There's another one, uh, the multiple dimensions of diversity. It's sort of an egg-shaped graphic that shows uh, primary and secondary identity features towards the center and organizational and cultural identities on the outer rings. That was created in 1991. That too is still widely used. And then if we look at the, at the numbers, um, we look at the, uh, when the EEOC began enforcing the American Disabilities Act in 1992, there were, race was 41% of the lawsuits, sex discrimination was 30%, and disability was 1%. More recently, in 2018, race accounted for 32% of the discrimination cases, sex 32%, disability 32%. In 2018, there were more than 76,000 cases filed, almost the exact same number of cases as in 1999. Granted, there's more people now, but you can see it's still a, a very large number. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, Morgan Stanley shelled out 50 to 54 million and Smith Barney and Merrill Lynch more than 100 million each to settle sex discrimination claims. 2007, Morgan was back at the table which, uh, facing a class action suit which cost the company 46 million. In 2013, Bank of America Merrill Lynch settled a race discrimination suit for 160 million. Cases like these brought Merrill's total 15-year payout to nearly half a billion dollars. So the history, beginning in the 80s, companies started pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars of consultant time plus internal time and resources, and yet many of those same organizations really struggled to move the needle. 
and the needle that they were struggling to move was not only diversity, but also inclusion. So my question is, has your organization had to settle any claims like this? Because settling discrimination claims is just one of the pain points that early DNI training was supposed to address. Now consider mid-sized and small organizations. They may have only one human resources person and contract out for the rest. And what have their results been? Uh, the answer is largely unknown because most studies do not include small and mid-sized organizations. They focus on the big ones. We have learned some things since the 1980s though. According to Harvard Business Review, researchers examined the success of mandated diversity training programs. They found that while it's simple enough to teach employees the right answers to a questionnaires or bias on an, um, or an appropriate response for a given situation, the actual training rarely ever sticks, no more than a few days anyway. And there's that word again, stick. There have been there have even been findings that suggest that these mandated diversity training courses actually have adverse effects. In the same article from Harvard Business Review, managers said that when diversity training was mandatory, it's often met with confrontation and even anger. Some, in fact, reported an increase in animosity towards a minority group. On the other hand, when workers see the training as voluntary, the result is improved attitudes and an increase of 9 to 13% in the hiring of minorities five years after the training. So there's another trip. Make DNI training optional. And that I know goes against conventional wisdom. But consider the backlash that you may have experienced in mandatory training. Are white men feeling attacked? Uh, have you noticed that some people are actively resistant? And are you measuring the outcomes after your DNI training? Do you know that what you did did you know, accomplish what it was supposed to do. Recently, there's been a number of articles and research papers on the effectiveness of diversity and unconscious bias training. Uh, one research paper from Work, Employment, and Society in the UK is titled, and I love this one, Pointless Diversity Training, Unconscious Bias, New Racism, and Agency. In it, the author states, quote, the latest fashion of unconscious bias training is a diversity intervention based on unproven suppositions and is unlikely to help eliminate racism in the workplace. Knowing about bias does not automatically result in changes in behavior by managers and employees. While the intention of addressing bias is laudable, the awareness training that typically accompanies these initiatives makes a series of assumptions about bias and pro-diversity pro action that can be challenged from a critical diversity perspective. As I was reaching, I, I, researching this, I found a number of articles that now uh, divide uh, uh, racism into three basic types. <clears throat> the first one is the traditional blatant type of racism, which has largely been societally repressed until recently. Uh, second one is symbolic racism or modern racism, colorblind racism, it's all the same thing, which includes those who believe that racial discrimination is no longer a problem and that ethnic minorities are just pushing too hard. The third type is aversive racism, which includes people who are proud about their lack of prejudice and they express egalitarian views, yet deep down they hold negative beliefs about racial minorities due to discomfort or anxieties stemming from their own sociocultural influences. 
Um, and that third type is the type that can be addressed or at least identified by taking the um, Harvard, uh, the implicit association test, Harvard's implicit association test. The failure to recognize that unconscious bias training is likely to be least effective for those whose actions most need modification is often due to the inadequate, inadequate treatment of assistance and responsibility. Part of the allure of the notion of unconscious bias is that it is not about blame. It's very convenient to believe that, gee, racial discrimination is not a product of my conscious thought, but deeply embedded. So discrimination really isn't my fault. An article from the Australian Journal of Public Administration reaches a similar conclusion, although it addresses gender rather than race. The article is titled, Unconscious Bias Training, the Silver Bullet for, quest for Gender Equity? Question mark. And it states that, quote, practices that go beyond training are necessary. Unconscious bias training needs to be incorporated in broader workplace interventions that are ongoing, staged, iterative, multi-level, and collective, end quote. A colleague of, of uh, Spectra's is Sarah Taylor of Deep Sea Consulting. She's a frequent presenter, coach, and exhibitor at the Multicultural Forum. She has a strongly worded podcast titled Dispelling False Perceptions About Diversity Training. And in it, she covers uh, why a one-off training seminar on diversity doesn't bring many benefits and why the true solution is a long-term systematic approach. I strongly recommend that you give it a listen. The podcast link is in this podcast summary document. Those of you who are active in the DNI space are probably also aware of the benefits to organizations that have inclusive cultures. Organizations with inclusive cultures are two times more likely to meet or exceed financial targets, three times more likely to be high performing, six times more likely to be innovative and agile, and eight times more likely to achieve better business outcomes. Most DNI training sessions that I've seen include some element of making the business case, which includes facts such as the ones I just gave. So to summarize this part, uh, since the 1980s, the timeline of diversity and inclusion has gone from compliance with the EEOC, or making the legal case, to it's the right thing to do, making the moral case, to it's the smart thing to do, making the business case. I'd like to make a case for a fourth way, to combine reason number two and three, combine the business case and the moral case for diversity and inclusion. So, my main point number two, why is it important to put a priority on inclusion? Harvard Business Review is a five-part series about advancing black leaders. In it, they refer to today's status quo at many companies as giving, quote, the illusion of inclusion, end quote. In the article, they state that senior leaders, most of whom are white men, must set the tone. Why? In one survey, nearly 40% of black employees said they feel it is never acceptable to speak out about experiences of bias, a silence that can become corrosive. Another study showed that among black professionals who aspire to senior leadership positions, the most frequently adopted strategy is to avoid talking about race or other issues of inequality for fear 
of being labeled as an agitator. Other research has indicated that the only CEOs and lower level managers not penalized for championing diversity are white men. To create a culture of psychological safety and pave the way for open communications, it requires a top-down directive and modeling through informal and formal discussions in which people are asked to share ideas, ask questions, and address issues without fear of reprisal. Deloitte um, has an inclusion model with four stages. They call them number one, fairness and respect, number two, valued and belonging, three, safe and open, four, empowered and growing. Spectra diversity, when we do our assessments, we have a five-stage maturity model. Number one, avoid, number two, comply, three, adopt, four, integrate, five, transform. Most of the organizations Spectra Diversity has assessed are in the adopt phase, which we define this way. An organization views diversity and inclusion as a key driver of organizational efficiency, employee engagement, or opportunities to expand markets. Measurements are in place to evaluate diversity and inclusion initiatives. There is some infrastructure and diversity and inclusion is aligned with the organization's mission and vision. The organization works to promote inclusion. So assuming right now that we know that organizations um, are aware that diversity and inclusion is necessary and beneficial, then why is it so hard to affect change? And that's today's main point number three, why it is hard to break through our implicit, implicit biases. Any corporate diversity and inclusion program is better than none, but most that exist today are not designed to sustain a focus on inclusion or equity. Many are siloed within the HR department. They might lack C-suite support or are given to women or people of color to manage in addition to their day jobs. Some are more show than go, resting on philosophical statements about inclusion rather than outlining concrete steps for advancing non-whites or other diverse populations. Others limit their efforts to anti-bias and cultural competence training, preempting problems, but again, not propelling anyone forward. Most take a broad brush approach to diversity, attempting to serve all minorities plus women, LGBTQ employees, those who are neurodiverse or disabled and offer uniform training and leadership development that ignores historical patterns of exclusion, marginality, and disadvantages for each of those groups. I call this uh, the generic training. Um, and the only way to not do generic training is to actually measure before you train so that you know what uh, audience populations to hit. So organizations might focus too heavily on recruitment and retention. So they're filling the pipeline with high potential groups, and then there's, but they're failing to support them past middle management roles. Most troubling, a significant portion of DNI programs try to, quote, manage blackness, end quote, or impose desirable and professional, i.e. white, norms and expectations on rising African-American stars, thus preserving rather than shifting the status quo. They train black executives to fit into the existing organizational culture 
rather than encouraging them to broaden it by bringing their true and most productive and authentic selves to work. However, a recent meta-analysis of over 40 years of diversity training evaluation showed that diversity training can work, especially when it targets awareness and skill development and occurs over a significant period of time. The key ingredient, I believe, is time. Strategies for controlling bias, which drive most diversity efforts, have failed spectacularly since they were introduced to promote equal opportunity in the 80s. Black men have barely gained ground in corporate management since 1985. Women haven't progressed since 2000. It isn't that there aren't enough educated women and minorities out there. Both groups have made huge educational gains over the past two generations. The problem is that we can't motivate people by forcing them to get with the program and punishing them if they don't. So I'd like to go back to um, habits for a second. And this is an example from, uh, once again, from The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And it's, for, it's about Alcoa aluminum. So there was a gentleman, Paul O'Neill, he was just, uh, he was named CEO when Alcoa was in very deep trouble. Um, he looked uh, dignified, solid, confident. He looked like a chief executive, and then he started to speak to his shareholders. Quote, I want to talk to you about work, worker safety, he said. Every year, numerous Alcoa workers are injured so badly that they miss a day of work. Our safety record is better than the general American workforce, especially considering that our employees work with metals that are 1,500 degrees and machines that can rip a man's arm off. But that's not good enough. I intend to make Alcoa the safest company in America. I intend to go for zero injuries. So O'Neill believed that some habits have the power to start a chain reaction, changing other habits as they move through the organization. Some habits, in other words, matter more than others in, in remaking the business and in lives. He calls these keystone habits, and they can influence how people work, eat, play, live, spend, and communicate. Keystone habits start a process that over time transforms everything. Uh, researchers have found institutional habits in almost every organization or company they've scrutinized, says Jeffrey Hodson. Individuals have habits, groups have routines. Routines are the organizational analog of habits. And uh, long story short, um, when he retired from Alcoa in 2000, um, even in his absence, the injury rate has continued to decline. In 2010, 82% of Alcoa locations didn't lose one employee day due to injury, which is kind of an all-time high. So now if you, if you substitute a word for safety, what would that word be? I mean, maybe at your organization, what would the keystone habit be? If, if we want to change inclusion, maybe it's something basic like listening or respect. And that brings me to my key point number four, how to create new habits of inclusion through year-long micro-learning methods designed to build new inclusion habits through repeated activities, gamification, and practice. 
So how can DNI programs be improved? Uh, the answer is by tackling shortcomings one by one. There are several steps that organizations can take. Some of these may be out of your control as an individual, but I think it's good that you know what they are in case you can be an advocate for change. Number one, give DNI sustained C-suite support and recognize and reward the people who contribute to its initiatives. For example, your chief diversity officer could report directly to the CEO in tracking the inclusion initiative participation and performance reviews and promotion and pay raise discussions. Number two, challenge those running DNI efforts to set clear goals for how representation, organizational networks, access to resources should change across functions and levels over time and how employees' perceptions, engagement, and well-being should improve. And then measure the efforts effectiveness with the data analysis and qualitative surveys. My organization, Spectre Diversity, has a diversity inclusion assessment that measures uh, both of these. And by measuring it, you can know whether or not you're improving it. Number three, shift from preventative or reactive measures, such as antibias training, to proactive ones, such as upping the number of black candidates considered for open positions and stretch roles. Number four, abandon, and I already just talked about this a little minute ago, but abandon one size fits all and colorblind leadership development practices in favor of courses and coaching tailored to specific groups. Or better yet, adopt personalized plans that recognize the multifaceted nature of each individual. And number five, stop asking black employees to blend in. Um, instead, emphasize the value of a workplace workplace that embraces all styles and behaviors, make it possible for people to bring their authentic and whole selves to work. In 2019, my organization took a poll of about 1,500 DNI professionals. Although we have a small sample size for the results, the data that came out was pretty clear. When we asked the question, what are your biggest challenges as a DNI consultant? 35% said that helping clients make organization-wide DNI changes was their biggest challenge. Another 35% said that getting mid-level managers buy-in to diversity and inclusion work was their biggest challenge. And then we asked the question, what diversity and inclusion post-training sustainment activities do you use? And 40% of our respondents said, I don't provide sustainment activities. So the, the data is clear. Ongoing sustainment efforts are necessary if an organization is going to create individual as well as systemic change within their organization. Many organizations and many DNI consultants are not taking this important step. I'm now going to give you three ways that you can create a sustainability program within your organization. Um, I'm calling them the Cadillac version, the Subaru Outback version, and the Yugo version. First, the Cadillac version. It's illustrated by two colleagues of mine, Laura Goodrich and Greg Stever of GWT Next, the Global Workforce Transformation. They've created what they call cinematic microlearning. They propose that cinematic microlearning is key to boosting retention and engagement and engaging employees in training and learning efforts. Their cinematic microlearning has a few distributors, but you can also buy it directly and it's been out for about three years. 
The cinematic portion means that um, they define it as increasing the learning engagement through storytelling. Narrative-based filmmaking serves as the backbone of our learning programs, which has proven boost in, which has been proven to boost information retention. The microlearning part is designed to learn faster and learn better. Microlearning is a technique of delivering educational video content in small, short, and specific bursts. They also, for each of their uh, programs, they have a roadmap, which is a guide for the human interaction side of the equation. It includes coaching conversations, collaboration with teams, and the sharing of ambassador stories. The reason uh, to use this, this process that they're calling cinematic microlearning is because of the evolving workforce. Millennials comprise over half the workforce, um, or they will comprise over half the workforce in less than 10 years. They've developed short attention spans and their tech-heavy upbringings, and they prefer video over any other medium. This upcoming generation of workers will need to be trained into their new roles with a program tailored for them. The cinematic microlearning fits that bill. And they also uh, adopted this approach because they believe that training sucks. Yep, training in general just plain sucks. There's a lack of retention, the content is frequently boring, and the quality could be poor, when it should be the exact opposite. Cinematic microlearning makes training fun, learners stay engaged with the materials and interaction amongst participants is encouraged. So these, these different programs that they've got, like I said, there's three of them. Each one of them has email delivery of the modules spaced out over time. They've got three to five minute videos in each one. There's an assessment tool. There's self-reflection questions. There's a way for participants to review the work. They can either do it um, together with each other, with their managers, or they can just do it on their own. There's ways to connect with their leaders and engage in one-on-one -on -one conversations. And there's progress tracking. The leaders need to know, have one coaching conversation per month. So the leaders are tracked in addition to the participants. And uh, there's retention checkups uh, via follow-up email. The reason I call their version the Cadillac version is because of their background and expertise. Uh, Laura has been a coach to leaders and organizations for more than 20 years. She's been a keynote speaker for nearly half of her life. She is the award-winning author of Seeing Red Cars, Driving Yourself, Your Team, and Your Organization to a Positive Future, which Forbes magazine labeled as a must-read for leaders who want to take, who want what it takes to accomplish positive change with a message that is transformational, relevant, and timely. Her partner, Greg Stieber, is a seasoned storyteller who also happens to own a camera. For several decades, he's helped brands clarify what they're doing, who they're speaking to. He's worked with National Geographic, 3M, PBS, and Prince. Yep, that Prince. Along the way, he's picked up a few accolades uh, to the tune of over 60 awards from local, national, and international levels. So I had a talk with them and uh, would like to share what they have learned and which you can apply to your sustainment efforts. Uh, point one, without sustainment, training has a 5 to 10% retention over time. Historically, change takes about three to five years to take place. But you have three to five years to do it. 
everything is moving so much faster. So ask your clients, what is the cost of not doing this? How much pain is your organization experiencing? Number two, if organizations use sustainability, there needs to be senior level support. There needs to be accountability methods established and adhered to. And that includes not only tracking the process or progress of the individual, but also middle managers as coaches or consultants as coaches. There needs to be uh, project management to make sure it's all working, and that's the tech side of things. And there needs to be those guides, those coaches, to make the behavior change happen or stick. And they need a roadmap. One of their um, cinematic microlearning programs was so successful that even people that hated Laura, which once you meet Laura, you'll understand that it's hard to believe anybody could hate Laura. But um, even the doubters saw that it worked. They completed a 360, a 360-degree assessment after, the, after their um, training and after the, the one year of, the, of this program. And it showed a 63% improvement in the competencies that they identify as, as the ones that senior leadership wanted to see happen. Those outcomes were being open to change, resourcefully addressing challenges and collaboration in teams and across teams. Now think for a minute, could you, could you imagine what your organization could do with a 63% improvement in inclusion skills? I mean, just, just imagine that for a minute, what a, what a different culture, what a different world that would be. Um, they also recommended that every program um, be built with the coaching embedded and to draw the answers from the people rather than giving people the answers. They said their best partners incorporate coaching, peer pressure is powerful, and use it to your advantage. The leaders doing the one-on-one -on -one conversations were, were rising to the top in terms of the outcomes that were desired by senior leadership. So um, after a, a keynote or a shorter session, Leela, Laura asks the senior leadership, you know, what's your plan for accountability and continuing the learning over time? Because real change is a process, not an event. If they say that they're done after the training or keynote, she responds, and then hope for the best, you may as well take them out for beer and pizza. If you're not committed to accountability and spacing the learning over time, don't bother. They also said that they didn't start out being a Cadillac. Their first microlearning experience was more like the Yugo version, which I'll tell you about shortly. There was an elementary school principal. He took their Seeing Red Cars videos and he cut them up into little bite-sized bite pieces. He then um, added the accountability piece with one-on-one -on -one meetings with the teachers and administrators. So his process was just look at this little video and then we're going to talk about it and it worked for him um, i asked laura uh, what do we do if our senior leaders don't buy in and she said that it was uh, important to understand their priorities and to make a connection between their priorities and what they're doing so find leaders that see the need and have a way through an assessment or other means to measure the outcomes Senior leaders don't care how many people complete the program. They care about the outcomes. Innovation, for example, that might be one of their outcomes. You have to be a trusted advisor to the senior leaders and their priorities you have to measure. I also asked, 
what are the biggest hurdles you have to overcome? And she responded that every organization is different, but the issue that they came across most often is that is to get true collaboration across generations. So they found ageism or age diversity to be their main challenge. And another one was just the, the resistance to change in general. There has to be a certain amount of pain for people to change, if, if, but it can't cost too much pain because then they get paralyzed. So an organization that's in a crisis mode, then all they can do is focus on their sales. But if they're kind of chugging along and not making any progress, you could ask your clients who are having a pain point, what happens if this trajectory continues? When I was talking to Laura, it reminded me of Starbucks. Um, you'll remember that two black men were denied access to the restroom while waiting for someone. There was a huge media backlash. Starbucks hired a diversity consulting firm, and then they closed all their stores for a half day of diversity training. So I'm wondering what happened? You know, did they move the needle? You know, how much did it cost them in terms of PR, in terms of sales, in terms of employee recruitment and retention? What would it have cost them if they still did nothing? And if anyone knows what the results are for Starbucks, I would love to hear them because I don't know. Uh, the second version of, of uh, sustainability is what I'm calling the Subaru Outback version. And this is the version that we're undertaking at Spectre Diversity. We accept the data that shows that a number of companies have gotten consistently positive results with tactics that don't focus on control of employees and instead apply three basic principles. Uh, first, to engage managers in solving the problem. When managers are actively helping to boost diversity in their company, something amazing usually happens. They begin to think of themselves as diversity champions. The hard part is getting them to engage when many already feel overwhelmed. And uh, we have a plan for that. Uh, second point is to expose them to people from different groups. At firms that created self-managed work teams, the share of white women, black men and women, and Asian American women in management rises by three to six percent over five years. Self-managed teams and cross-training have had more positive effects than mandatory diversity training. Performance evaluations, job testing, grievance procedures, all of which are supposed to promote diversity. And third, encourage social accountability for, for change. On average, companies that put in diversity task forces, task force size, uh, see 9 to 30% increase in the representation of white women and of each minority group in management over the next five years. Once it's clear that top managers are watching, women start to get more premier assignments. So the diversity and inclusion sustainment program that we're building at Spectre Diversity focuses on just two keystone activities. Remember that keystone activity at Alcoa was uh, safety. So like Alcoa, we believe that if after diversity and inclusion awareness training takes place, sustainment needs to focus on skill building of a few key concepts to change habits which are ingrained and which contribute to implicit bias and to all the isms and to intentional or unintentional microaggressions. So here's what we're doing. 
is our course outline. We've created four modules per month for one year. This is 48 modules of about three minutes on average. So they're a little shorter than the Cadillac version. The course is going to include repetition and reinforcement of key learnings from the DNI sessions included in our facilitation kit. It's going to include gamification, some activities that we hope will be fun. Uh, we're going to use the sandwich method that I spoke about earlier, in which a new topic or difficult topic is presented between two known or, firm or, or familiar ideas. Uh, we're going to include accountability and involvement of middle managers or supervisors in a coaching role, and we'll need to create a coaching guide to support that work. It will be self-pacing, so the emails are going to come out weekly and the activities must be completed in order, but the pace is self-directed. And it will have the short video components, like I said, um, which can be either moderator introductions or, or uh, instructions, sometimes a YouTube video, sometimes expert testimonial or a key message from one of our change partners. And then also team interactions. Some of the activities are with colleagues or teams. So it's even though it is delivered to an individual, there are some activities which need to be completed with a colleague or, or a little group. So how we're building the course, uh, we don't have any instructional designers on staff who are fluent in online course development. Uh, we know enough about creating an e-learning course to know that we needed ad additional experience expertise, excuse me. We started with Upwork as a source to evaluate individuals who were skilled at both instructional design and programming e-learning modules. So we didn't want to hire someone through Upwork and then have it not work out. So we arranged for our top candidates to create trial modules based on one of our existing training activities from our facilitation kit. So we'll provide the information to the four e-learning designers in a PowerPoint with notes. The designers will then use their creativity and style to create one module of two to three minutes long. The goal of this activity is to see how the designer's style will fit with ours, and then to hire one of the four designers to work with us for the entire course. And we're, go we're gonna pay for these trial or audition modules. We were also specifically looking for diversity within the designer pool of talent. Um, so we have diversity within our, our pool, but we have not yet chosen our winning designer. The way that the course is going to be created is on Articulate. It will be accessed through our website using passcodes connected to the participants' emails. People will be able to take the course at their own pace, but need to take it in order. Our clients will be able to launch it as either a pilot with just a few teams or just a few locations or the entire organization. It's their choice. We're giving them multiple options. Uh, we'll recommend that it's a voluntary process with one-on-one -on -one accountability from management, in which case peer pressure, like Laura said, will pay, pay a role in who partakes in the process. Um, but our clients will be able to decide whether it's mandatory training or optional. It's up to them. Um, and then a few words about the gamification portion of it. Uh, one of the reasons why the gamification is going to play a heavy role is because of the millennials and the upcoming uh, Gen Z population. Like the use of video with uh, GWT Next, gamification is a way to engage younger employees. And we've got two types of uh, gamification. One type, which is the typical type, is learning to know. And this includes learning that has right or wrong answers. 
So it's matching activities, crossword puzzles, multiple choice, fill in the blank, that sort of thing. And the other part is, which is most of it, is learning to do. And this includes learning that is ambiguous, where the answer is discovered and learned through practice and feedback. So learning to do could be a virtual role play. It could be open-ended storytelling. It could be assigned role plays. Um, I wrote down IRL in real life. Um, it could be a branching scenario. And there might just be one of these because of the cost to develop it. But this would have multiple actions and reactions depending on what choices are taken and include the ability to replay to see what happens. Uh, the other learning to do is, is would be with a community. So some assignments would require the assembly of a team. Um, an old joke is <laughs> an old joke is how lonely it must have been for the first person who had a Facebook account. So we're going to work to to build a community and take advantage of the network effects for our clients. So. For example, if five people are on, are on a network, the power isn't five times greater than one person, but is two to the fifth power, or 32, because of the value of each connection. So our plan at Spectre Diversity is to have community-created content through a chat room, posts, comments, points, rating system, or video recordings uploaded from our participants uh, via smartphones. And then the third version, so that's our version. The third version is the Yugo version. And you may already have been thinking about content that you could repurpose and redistribute for sustainability. It can be simple. The, the key is that it be twofold, that it be sustained and that there be accountability. So here's a few examples of, of what you can do. Uh, you could have the weekly emails with existing content in bite-sized pieces. This would be like the, like the principal, the grade school principal did with uh, Laura and Greg's uh, program. You could use PowerPoint and record your voice to illustrate a point. Um, I use Snagit for recording. It's free and it's easy to use. You could go report, uh, record some subject matter experts on a smartphone. This could be a selection of diverse people answering a single question. Um, something like, uh, when was the earliest time you remember being different in some way? So you record a bunch of these and then you re release one or two of these per month and then um, organize a discussion around it. You can play a card game. I recommend Story Stitch by Green Card Voices. It takes about one hour to play, so it could be a lunch and learn. It can be played multiple times with different people. A pair of trained facilitators is recommended. To, to do it, I've been trained and so have many others. You can contact uh, Green Card Voices for more information. Or you could uh, make it something simple, like buy each team member a nice journal, like a male moleskin journal, and assign self-reflection questions for each week. So at the end of the month, the journal's reviewed with a manager in a one-on-one -on -one discussion. So the reason for a journal, rather than typing on a document, is because of the connections formed in the brain when you write something down. So a little memory goes from, you know, the moleskin through your pen, through your hand, up your arm and into your brain. It makes the learning sticky. Uh, and that's about it. Um, I've covered a lot of material today. I hope you remember the key points that DNI training needs to be sustained over time to become sticky and achieve results. 
And then I asked the question, are you going to be a Cadillac, a Subaru Outback, or a Yugo? Please commit to being one of them so that we can move the inclusion needle in 2020. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much, Chris, for your uh, for your time and for that outstanding podcast. Um, I, I I know I say this every time, but the, like with every podcast that we do, there's always so much new that I learn and so much more to consider, and so many different ways of approaching and things that I never even thought about, um, and it always leave me thinking. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much for that, and thank you all for listening and for joining us today. If you'd like to continue the conversation or learn more about um, creating the stick, um, you can feel free to contact Chris directly at intro, uh, info at spectro, spectrodiversity.com or at, um, visit their website, www.spectrodiversity.com. As Chris said, um, there, there are some also resources that you'll be sharing that we'll also be posting onto the website when we post, uh, post this recording. And you can listen to this podcast and all our other podcasts at forumworkplaceinclusion.org um, backslash podcast. Or you can also subscribe or listen on Apple, po uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Anchor. Uh, again, Chris, I just want to thank you so much for today's podcast and hope wish you a happy 2020. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. An Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.